You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. As we were thinking about how to get into this episode, our assistant producer, Shannon Geary, shared a relevant personal story that seems like a fitting way to proceed. She joined us to kick things off. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Seth. So take it away. For this story, I'm going to take you back to when I was in the fourth grade. We had a science teacher who would visit our classroom once a week. And one week, our science lesson was all about light and color, how we see color, what color is, how color is a light wave. And as we were learning all about color, my science teacher brought up the point that technically we can't be sure that every individual person is seeing and perceiving color in the exact same way. Okay, so the idea is that you and I could be looking at the same object, for example, an apple, and each of us would call it red, but how do we know that we're both perceiving the color the same way? I mean, it is weird. I also thought about that as a kid. Yeah, I I have to admit, I was a little freaked out by it. The idea that here I was looking down at my shirt, and I thought my shirt was blue, maybe a dark blue, but my friend sitting next to me might think it was more of a greenish blue. My classmates all thought this was such a cool concept, and while I was nodding along with everyone else that, yeah, isn't that so cool, I was also a little bit frightened. Just the fact that we might physically perceive the world in different ways was mind-blowing to me as a fourth grader. I think it's mind-blowing to someone no matter what their age. Shannon learned at a young age that we all experience separate realities, at least to some degree, but lately some of our individual interpretations of reality have diverged so much that we might wonder if shared reality has shattered completely. Perhaps you know a family member or a friend who has adopted anti-science views or embraced conspiratorial views about vaccines or even the shape of the earth you might feel like you're living on different planets. I'm interested in the fact that we are no longer having a debate about shared interpretations of reality. Disinformation, I think, is the challenge of our time. When people look back on the current era, some people have said they'll call it the information age. I think they might call it the disinformation age. So we ask, how did we get here? What do we lose when we deviate from not only a shared reality, but an objective one. This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode of Skeptic Check, our regular look at critical thinking, we have a conversation with author Naomi Klein and science philosopher Lee McIntyre.
Author Naomi Klein is known for her books critiquing our efforts to combat climate change. She covers the intersection of science, politics, and society, a busy and chaotic crossroads. An associate professor of geography at the University of British Columbia and a co-director at the Center for Climate Justice, her latest book about the dangers of disinformation begins with an unusual premise, the idea of doppelgangers. Which sounds like a plot device from a thriller, but Dr. Klein makes the case that we are now living with a mirror image of reality all around us. In her book, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World, Naomi Klein describes the effect her personal doppelganger, another Naomi, Naomi Wolf, has had on her relationship with the public and with her own sense of reality and what this means for all of us. Naomi, I'd like to talk about the corrosive effect that disinformation is having on our acceptance of facts and participating in a shared reality. But let's begin, as you do, with the role that the writer and now anti-vax activist Naomi Wolf plays in this. What do we need to know about her? Well, I think for the purposes of this conversation, it's it's most relevant that she is somebody who has spread a great deal of medical misinformation and disinformation, particularly during COVID. Um, She is one of the most influential misinformers. Um, She was particularly influential on the vaccine shedding myth, the idea that, that COVID vaccines shed onto unvaccinated people and affects their menstrual cycles. The reason she's been influential uh, in this way is because she was a very prominent feminist. Uh, She came up in the 90s as one of the telegenic faces of the third wave of feminism with her book, The Beauty Myth. She worked for the Democratic Party. She was a top advisor for Al Gore's presidential uh, campaign. So she had some real kind of feminist and uh, liberal bona fides. And so it's significant, I think, when she leads people into these conspiracy rabbit holes. She was doing some of this uh, before COVID around things like chemtrails, 5G, science-related misinformation. But you know, I, what I write in the book is that she was more of a kind of a, a conspiracy dabbler before COVID. But during COVID, it became you know her entire life. And she is the doppelganger your doppelganger, I should say. I wonder if you could describe the concept of a doppelganger in general and what happened to make her yours or at what point you realized that she had become yours. Yeah, so a doppelganger, it's a German word and it it literally translates as double walker. And there is a an ancient myth that we all have an exact double that is walking around somewhere and we could bump into them. And if we did, it would be a harbinger of our own death. Uh, so doppelgangers in, in literature often have this foreboding quality to them. But more recently, the meaning of doppelganger has become quite a bit looser. Um, Taylor Swift has a doppelganger and she has many followers on TikTok and she's always showing up at malls and things and confusing people. Um, so now do- the term doppelganger is is used much more loosely to mean just somebody who who the world confuses for you or, or who you you, you yourself have the feeling that when you look at them, that you're looking into a kind of living mirror. In my case, I didn't have that experience with Wolf. Like when I look, would look at her, I wouldn't see myself. I had the experience of just um, being chronically confused with her 
by other people. So, um, you know, this would happen mostly online, but not exclusively online, where where I would be credited, blamed <laughs> for her work. And sometimes the confusions were, were perfectly benign, but as she got more and more involved in conspiracy culture, it, it became more and more troubling. And given that that uh, medical misinformation is a leading cause of death in the United States, arguably, during covid I took it more seriously. There were other th- reasons why I took it more seriously, I think, as well, you know, including the fact that I was locked in my home, or not physically locked, but, you know, we were, we were all isolated. And a lot of the ways that I understood who I was in the world in conversation with other people were not available to me as they weren't available to so many of us. And so when I saw all these people online confusing me with her, it made me kind of wonder well, who am I? (laughs) Like, you know, am I just who I know myself to be? And if the rest of the world thinks I'm this other person who's spreading all of these wild theories, who am I then? And then I thought, well, this is an interesting idea for a book because there were so many people who were changing during COVID, who were becoming kind of doppelgangers of themselves. And I I would have conversations with so many people who say, I can't talk to my sister anymore. I can't talk to my uncle. And so... Uh, you know, I, I read all these books about doppelgangers and watched all these doppelganger films and realized it's actually a really useful tool to get at the way, different kinds of doubling and mirroring, which is what I do in the book. It, it just uses her as a, and my own identity confusion as a jumping off point for understanding larger and more consequential forms of identity doubling at work in our, in our society. And you and she had different purposes online. I mean, she's been spreading misinformation. You have been trying to alert people to the dangers of climate change, and your work has been fact-based. So it wasn't just annoying. It was actually getting quite scary, perhaps, that the paths were crossing. Um, Well, I wonder if you could make it clear what the relationship is between doppelgangers and what you describe as the mirror world. Yeah, so, so what I do with Wolf is, I mean, she is a, a case study for these people who changed, particularly during the pandemic, who, be, who who suddenly started subscribing to these wild theories that maybe COVID was a plot that had been hatched at the World Economic Forum with Bill Gates and Klaus Schwab and the Chinese Communist Party. And we've all heard versions of this. So, I, you know, I use her as a case study to try to understand that, but I also use her as a kind of white rabbit to fall down the rabbit hole and really try to understand the world where she now lives, where she is uh, on Steve Bannon's show regularly, where they co-published a book together, or she's on Tucker Carlson. Um, You know, every one of her wild theories, like claiming that people who've been vaccinated no longer smell like humans, or if you sleep in a hotel room bed that has been slept in by somebody who was vaccinated, it could affect your menstrual cycle. I mean, she's got some pretty wild theories. But what's interesting is that every time she shares them, she is inundated with responses from people who tell her that she is a Cassandra, the only one telling the truth, that they're so glad she she shared that. So I'm interested in the fact that we are no longer having a debate about shared interpretations of reality, but that on either side of the metaphorical glass separating us and the mirror world, 
we're having disagreements about who is in a simulation and who is is in reality. Um, like they they believe that we're the ones who are completely duped, um, that we've turned into doppelgangers of ourselves, that we've become unbelievably obedient, unskeptical. There's a narrative about us to match every narrative that we have about them. What I, so what I mean by the mirror world is this world that she inhabits now and where there is a mirror of, you know, of every claim that we would make about them, there's a claim about us. And I also make the argument that that often people who pride themselves on being fact-based and connected to reality are very reactive to what is going on in the mirror world. Um, so anything that, that they touch, we don't want to have anything to do with. So for instance, if they were talking about the COVID origins um, and casting it in conspiratorial light, like maybe it, maybe COVID was, was cooked up in the Wuhan lab as a bioweapon, then it becomes kind of unsayable as it was for a couple of years in liberal circles to investigate COVID origins because we were all, you know, that was kind of crazy people stuff. Uh, so, you know, we, we in a little a little bit, we start playing yin to the other yang and we're kind of like tethered to them and, and whatever they're for, we're against and vice versa. And I think you define it, the mirror world also as the society split in two and the other side, one side or the other side that's not based in facts, uh, defining itself in reflexive opposition to the other. I wonder if we could use those terms, though, that you're using now, us and them. I think what you're saying is the us are the people who are basing the reality and facts. And the others, I think, as you write so disturbingly, is that people will say to you, you have your sources, I have mine. Yeah. And I do believe that we, you know, if there is a, a we, if there is an us, you know, who are not conspiracy fabulists, and I don't call them conspiracy theorists, I call them conspiracy fabulists or conspiracy influencers, because there really isn't a, a coherent theory there. Much like climate change deniers, and I've spent time with climate change deniers. And you know, when I went to a Heartland conference uh, many years ago, when I was writing This Changes Everything, um, Part of me was afraid that if I spent a couple of days with professional climate change deniers, many of whom were scientists, that I that because I I am not a climate scientist, that I would doubt what I understood about like it, 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 like would they change me? <laughs> and the opposite happened because they were so incoherent. You know, one person would stand up and say, you know, it's actually getting colder, and the next person would stand up and say it's getting hotter, but it's sunspots, and then the next person would would stand up and say it's getting hotter, but, but it's, it's actually plant food, you know, and then, you know, the next person would say it's an ice age. And then the, the next person would say, well, humans aren't causing it. it you know, so it's, it, it was just like, oh, you have no theory. You're just throwing stuff at the wall to spread doubt, right? That's what the project is. Like, I, I do pride myself on being more fact-based th than they are. And I do believe they're really just making a lot of stuff up. And I don't, and I believe that, you know, scholars don't do that. And, you know, good journalists don't do that. But I also don't want to be so kind of self-congratulatory to, as, as to say that we are following the facts wherever they lead, no matter what, because part of what I think happened during COVID is that we got very partisan and issues that shouldn't have been partisan, like, like COVID origins, were seen through this kind of us and them lens. And, you know, it became difficult to talk about a lot of things, frankly, including the fact that there are some adverse reactions to vaccines, right? And then if we think about, you know, 
the the work of, of, of my life, which is trying to come up with a, an actual response to the climate crisis, there are lots of people who are in the us, you know, quote unquote, us camp, who say all the right things about the science, but then do the exact opposite, you know, if they're in government. So I don't know. I don't know. Are they in the reality-based community? I'm not sure. Like a, a politician who who says they believe in the science and they'll follow it wherever it leads and then approves a massive new oil field and a new pipeline. I mean, I just don't want to get so complacent as to say that we are the science people because I'm just not sure all the time. To help understand the bewildering world created by disinformation in the context of what he calls the post-truth world, itself an alarming concept, we turn to Lee McIntyre. Lee is a philosopher of science and a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and the History of Science at Boston University. His recent books are Post-Truth and On Disinformation. Hi, Lee. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me back. One of the things that was most striking about the interview is when you started to talk about the relationship between disinformation and misinformation and the idea of creating the us versus them. And the reason I just really kind of set up at that point, it was so interesting to me, is because what I think a lot of people miss is the idea that disinformation is not just the intentional sharing of a falsehood, it's also intended to polarize you. It's intended to make you feel that you don't trust the people who don't believe the same falsehood that you do. And the really interesting part of that, I think, is that it doesn't just polarize then the person who believes the falsehood. It polarizes the person who doesn't believe the falsehood because they're the other side of the us versus them. And, you know, you have to think of this because when you hear something that's just so absurd and you think, how can people believe this? It might make you feel like, well, I can't even talk to that person. They're not interested in my facts. They don't want to talk to me. I shouldn't even approach them. And in some ways, that's exactly what the disinformer wants. They want to create that us versus them mentality where the people who are on their team believe every word that they say and the people who don't just stay away and don't even try to talk to them. And one would say, oh, well, polarization is the byproduct, not the motivation. No, I think polarization is the motivation. I think a person who makes up disinformation, it's in their best interest, not just to have someone to believe a falsehood, but to distrust someone else who doesn't also believe that same falsehood. So they're not just intending to corrupt your belief about one particular thing that they're lying about. They're really corrupting the whole process by which you gain future true beliefs. But there's another thing, and this is maybe what I fear the most about disinformation. It is exhausting to have to fact check everything. I mean, even if you don't believe the disinformation, the, the demand, you know, the epistemic demand to just you know, of this fire hose of, of uh, false information that you've got to refute and you've got to figure out who the reliable sources are and where your trust should go. Some people just want to give up. 
They want to give up fighting back. They want to give up uh, trying to convert the people who already believe the falsehood. So it's a very insidious thing to polarize someone because what they're really undermining is not just the truth, but also trust. As the spread of lies and conspiracy theories create competing experiences of reality, we ask, is there even such a thing as objective reality? That's next in this episode of Skeptic Check, our regular look at critical thinking on big picture science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. The question of how we know what we know is interesting to me, of course, because it's fundamental to science. As an astronomer, for example, the answer to how do we understand the universe is that we make observations, we make measurements until we understand the physical structure and behavior of what we see. But now people can't seem to agree even on the methods of science and how we discern truth. Let's return to our conversation with author Naomi Klein about her exploration of how disinformation is fracturing reality. She describes this in her book, Doppelganger, a trip into the mirror world. This next question is one that I would not have asked you a decade ago or so. Maybe it's just that I yearn to hear it, and that is a definition of objective reality and a shared reality. Because not only do we need a reminder that it once existed, that we existed in it, I'm afraid, and I think you're afraid, that we're moving away from the memory of acknowledging its importance. So it's very strange to ask someone what objective reality is. But Naomi, what is objective reality? It is not an easy question to answer. But it, it you know, and I think in, in some ways, it's easier to, to make a distinction between, you know, honest efforts to expose uh, you know, if we're talking about conspiracies, like, you know, real scandals, and showing our work, and knowing that just because something feels true doesn't mean that you have proved it, and the kind of dishonest conspiracy fabulists and influencers spreading unproven and often contradictory claims for clout and cash and also political power. So I think we can distinguish between, you know, when it from a research perspective, what like like what it takes to come to something that we might agree is as close as we can come to a shared reality. There are journalistic conventions to get there. There, there, there are academic rules and, and guardrails. And what happens in the mirror world is you have a kind of a doppelganger of academic research and journalism that uses a lot of its kind of conventions around findings and proof and breaking news and all of that. 
but it leaps over every single one of the guardrails of fact checking, peer review, you know, you name it. But your question is deeper than that. Like, you know, what is shared reality? You know, I've been on book tour for several weeks with a book and I, I had a really wonderful conversation in Toronto with a writer named Jesse Wenty. And he asked me the same question. How do you know what is real? <laughs> and, you know, I hemmed and hawed and, and he said, and mountain is real. A moose is real. <laughs> um, water is real. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, maybe it's a bit of a challenge to those of us who are in the academy and kind of get, get lost online to root as much as possible in the physical world. It almost feels like we have to build it up like Legos from the ground up again in terms of what can we agree is a fact and is real and then sort of build it up from there. Um, you talked about the, the motivations. You just hinted at the motivations of people who are spreading bad information. And I, I wonder if we could just consider those because from your book, I counted at least three people who are spreading misinformation for profit. Number two would be ideological disruption to sow chaos. But then there are true believers out there. There are people who are really hurting and are scared about the world, and they are passing on information. I wonder if you could just comment on the different kinds of motivations and how different motivations suggest different ways to combat it. Yeah, and I think it's really, really key to make the distinction between figures like my my doppelganger who is as i said at the start you know she's she's a big player in this world um and i call her an influencer um and i use that language because that it's a business model i i can't say whether that's her primary motivation but i do know that as a business it's been a very successful business and i have covered many disasters as a journalist and also, you know, written about them in an academic context. And I've been in a lot of disaster zones. Um, you know, I've been, it was in Iraq post-invasion. I was in New Orleans post-Hurricane Katrina. Um, I was in Puerto Rico post-Hurricane Maria and on and on. What I know is that in every one of those cases, and others I haven't named, there have always been conspiracies that have surged to try to make sense of a devastating event that seemed to be being exploited, which is what I was writing about. That's what, you know, my beat is disaster capitalism, right? So that's what I'm covering. And so I've often heard people say, well, maybe they did it on purpose just so that they could grab our land. You know, maybe it would, maybe the U.S. detonated a weapon to cause the tsunami so that they could do this, you know. And I think that, that, that it makes sense that people look for stories, especially when they come from communities that have been historically exploited by elite powers, and they have reason to be suspicious of power. And so they're looking for some story that's going to make sense of, of what they've lived through. And, um, and what's different about what we've been talking about with these conspiracy influencers is that COVID is the first global disaster to truly play out on on these social media platforms with all of the the built-in incentives and disincentives um, and allowed for the monetization of conspiracy culture, right? So if you are the one who puts out the the, the claim that, you know, there was a 
plot to cause the disaster in the first place, then you're going to get the views, you're going to get the likes. And if you're good at the internet, you'll figure out how to monetize it. So that is that is a big driver. You mentioned I uh, like ideological disruption and just being a chaos agent, which is, I think, mainly Steve Bannon's game and Tucker Carlson's game. Um, and that doesn't mean they're not also grifters. They, these can go exi- coexist. But none of it would work. The grift doesn't work if you don't have customers, like if you don't have people who are buying the subscriptions and watching the ads and and wanting this content in the millions upon millions. So um, so what is driving that? And that is more complicated because most people are not getting rich from this. Most people don't have an ideological plan. They are drawn to this because it is meeting a need uh, or multiple needs, a need for mission, a need for community, but also it is speaking to, as you said, it's speaking to real pain. This gets to your examination of why some of these narratives are so compelling, and that is that we live in disorienting times. I mean, we have, I mean, someone may be talking about the chips that are in the vaccines. I don't even know what the most recent one is, but we have valid fears. We should have valid fears about how technology is being used, whether it's machine learning or it's genetic uh, engineering. And you write that the the power of disinformation, as you just said here, often provides people with something that they want. It's a focal point for this fear and this outrage that they feel about digital surveillance or whatever the other encroachments of technology may be on our humanity. But I think that's a really key one, the digital surveillance one, because that was the that was the conspiracy theory that really got lift off early on, the idea that the vaccines were you know, sec- secretly going to be chips that were going to track us. And then the same claims were made about the vaccine verification apps, which were called passports, which they should not have been called because that triggered people's surveillance fears even more, right? But the idea, like Wolf, uh, Naomi Wolf talked a lot about how those vaccine verification apps could hear your conversations, would, you know, know exactly where you were all the time, even if they hadn't been scanned, that it was the first step towards imposing a Chinese style social credit system that that they, you know, whoever the big they is, we're going to be able to turn off your life if you didn't obey. Um, and so this is actually where she really st- took a star turn during during the pandemic when she started saying this. And it really made me think like she's tapping into a fear that is very real. What she's saying about the apps is absolutely wrong. They cannot listen to us. I checked it with the Electronic Frontier Foundation who do not take our electronic privacy uh, uh, lightly. But the response to these conspiracy theories uh, on the sort of liberal left online meme world was wait till they hear about cell phones. And it was this kind of sneering response, right? Of like, oh, we know that it's our cell phones that already track us and, you know, are collecting all this information about us. But it, it, it struck me that that was such a strange response because it implies that we're okay with that, right? Whereas they are saying all of this in tones of high alarm, right? And that's why they speak to the feeling because actually a lot of people are very uncomfortable with and very unclear on what is happening with their data, right? Because it's all kind of shrouded in the black boxes of these private tech companies who don't really tell us, right? We we pressed agree about that on the terms of service and that's all we know. And this kind of miasma of disinformation that we're wading in and then the outrage, those who 
people who feel like they're fact-based with the people who are misrepresenting uh, the facts. There's so much fighting that we are not coming together to face and consider the questions of how technology will play a role in our future. You know, I looked up um, the ways in which other new technology has aroused fear throughout history. I just wanted to share a couple with you that I found sort of amusing okay. and today just seem silly. Um, when le electricity was first introduced, people thought it was dark magic. They didn't want it in their homes. The cultural anthropologist uh, Genevieve Bell said that when the passenger train was introduced, people worried, as she said, that the unprecedented speeds could send women's uteruses hurling from their bodies. Ooh, and that's a good one. That's a good one. And uh, people who rode elevators claimed that they had elevator sickness afterward, and they didn't know how these, these machines worked. And they're pretty scary, right? You're hanging hundreds of feet in the air by a cable. Now we can kind of smile at those, and maybe, you know, 100 years from now, people will smile at our reactions to some of these new technologies, unless they won't. And I wonder if the fears today about digital devices and AI are fundamentally different than the fears of technology in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think there have also been legitimate fears about technology in the past and being displaced by machines and that, that weren't these sort of fantastical claims. You know, the original Luddites were genuinely and rightly concerned that their craftsmanship was going to be replaced by these mechanized looms, right? And they were. And I think that AI falls into that category. I don't think you need any kind of wild conspiracy or uh, to, to think about how automating uh, tasks that are currently being done by humans for money um, will eventually replace that work. So yeah, I mean, I'd, I wouldn't put concerns about AI into the same category as like fears about your uterus falling out from a fast train. I think those are really, really logical and rational fears. Well, Lee, let's go straight to a concept that you might teach in an introductory philosophy course that is relevant to our discussion with Naomi Klein. Tell us about epistemology. Epistemology is a branch in philosophy having to do with the theory of knowledge, how what knowledge is and how you come to have it. And it's usually opposed to the idea of metaphysics, one branch of which is ontology, which is how things are in the world. So in short, there's how the world is and how you know how the world is. And the latter is epistemology. Well, let's keep going down that path a little bit, because uh, this does get into the question of how we define objective reality and how we know what we know. And so um, how should we be understanding our world? How should we be coming to know our world, Lee? So you're talking to a philosopher, and so if you're asking me to define objective reality, we'll, we'll be here all day. <laughs> Let me just say, I was so excited just to hear the conversation about objective reality. That doesn't happen very often. Um, objective reality used to not be controversial, because I think truth not to, used to not be controversial. We all sort of had the idea that there is something that's true. We may not know it. It may be difficult to know. We may disagree about what it is. But I can't remember another time in human history when we seem to disagree so much about the idea that there actually was an objective truth. 
And one of the sad things that I think has happened to us in recent years is that people seem to have given up on this idea of objective reality to think that, well, you have your truth and I have my truth or everything is only narrative. And I think that's the pathway to doom. Um, you couldn't do science in those circumstances and I don't think you can do much else. I'm going to pick up on that phrase, the pathway to doom, because that is quite a dramatic statement. Why is not having an objective reality or trying to work toward an objective reality detrimental to society? So it's hard enough to know objective reality, uh, let alone to claim that it doesn't exist. Okay, And the problem is that if you don't think that there's an objective reality, or even if you think that you can't know an objective reality, how do you function as a society? How can you go forward with policy or just even with daily living? Well, let, let me push back a little bit on this idea that we are losing our sense of objective reality, because how do we know we ever had it? I mean, could it just be that we've all been living in our own bubbles, and the difference now is that everyone has a soapbox to share their reality? I think it works backwards. I think that if people lose the idea that they can know the truth, one attractive conclusion is maybe there is no truth. Maybe there is no objective reality. I mean, this goes back to Plato and the, the allegory of the cave. Plato believed that we were all prisoners who could not experience reality directly while we were embodied here on earth. And the parable that he uses to explain that is we're like prisoners in a cave who are chained to a rock looking at the shadows on the wall. So the sun is behind us and reality is behind us, but we can't see it directly because we can't turn our head. All we can see are the shadows of reality, which means that we can never know it directly. And that's because we each have a different experience. I mean, we can be in the same place at the same time and we'll still have slightly different perspectives because our emotions are coming into it, our past experience are coming into it, we have different brains, different emotional makeup, and different interpretations of the world. And, and that's all completely fine. But now we live in an era in which some people are standing behind us putting their own shadows up that have nothing to do with what's happening outside the cave. So we're in this chaotic environment where, I mean, it was already hard enough and now it's being made harder. And my fear is that people are just gonna give up. They're gonna give up on the idea that there is such a thing as the truth. There is such a thing as objective reality. So what we end up with is personal opinion and feelings and narrative, and that's it. The worry that I have is this, when we're outside a philosophical discussion, those sorts of considerations can be used by wannabe authoritarians or autocrats or fascists to convince us that there actually is no objective reality, so we should just believe what they say. I mean, an audience who doesn't believe that there's a truth is one that doesn't believe that there's any such thing as blame or accountability. They become cynical, they become gullible in a way. And this is not what Plato wanted. I mean, Plato felt that you were supposed to, there was a limitation in knowing reality, absolutely. But you were supposed to try your very best still to know it. But to, to give in to the idea that we can never actually know the truth or we can never know one another's experience is I think to give up on the idea of knowledge. <music> Thank you.
Next, why finding our way back to a shared reality might require stepping away from our computers. We're discussing the nature of reality with authors Naomi Klein and Lee McIntyre in this episode of Skeptic Check on Big Picture Science. As we return to our conversation with Naomi Klein about the risks posed by disinformation, we turn to the aha moment. Solutions. Not only those that might help friends and family escape the warped thinking created by conspiracy theories, but how we can all overcome bitter divisions to address our most daunting problems. In her book, Doppelganger, Dr. Klein writes that a first step is to bring down the temperature of the debate. People are more likely to unite if facts are presented calmly. Even if the content of it is alarming, the very fact of orienting people in something that we recognize as a shared reality, that sort of click of recognition, is calming in my experience. Calm and the ability to act rationally are intimately connected, right? So, and I don't see calm as an antithesis of to, to being angry. I think people have a right to be angry, and I don't think we should try to talk them out of it if they get upset about things that are upsetting. But I do think that that calm is a precondition for wise decision making. Which, which humans are capable of doing. I mean, they're incredibly adaptive species. They're also capable of great irrationality. Well, especially when, when we don't have a story, when our stories fail us, right? Because we are creatures of narratives. And so when something happens that we've not seen before, that wasn't part of our narrative, like a global pandemic that locked us all in our houses, we are people without a story, and that makes us very vulnerable. We're also emotional creatures, and one of the problems with social media that you identify, that other people have identified, of course, is that it does reward the drama, and it rewards that apocalyptic language because it grabs attention, and there are reasons why humans pay attention when there is a danger. But now there's so much of that online. Do you think that social media is a tool that has a role as we go forward and try to find that objective reality again. I mean, has social media just outlived its purpose? I mean, I think the tricky thing is that we realized this so late that it has decimated a lot of the pre-existing information ecology that connected us before we all got hooked on social media. Um, So local newspapers are in tatters. Uh, A lot of us don't even know how to reach a lot of people in our lives except on social media. So I think it's very wise to build in some redundancies so we're not dependent on Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg to find one another in that same way. And as much as possible, because we're not all going to just get off social media, try to use it as a tool rather than be used by it. And for me, that means... Uh, not using it as my primary means of communicating with the world, which is, you know, which is hardest in moments of crisis, to be frank with you. And so, you know, when I say use it as a tool, don't be used by it, because so many of us are still using these tools, using it to say, come to this in-person gathering, this meeting, this rally, come, you know, come to this deeper text that maybe is not 280 characters, but is, I don't know, 
4,000 words. Like, you know, you know, the more that we can use it to lead people out away from it, I guess is what I'm saying. I think the better off we'll be. As we consider solutions, I'd like to get back to how to help people who are hurting. How do we do that? And how do we convince people who are comforted by fantasies that fact-based reality has something to offer? I mean, all we can do is try. And I think that it really is the, the friend that you have, the people that you know, they're most likely to listen to you. I mean, they're certainly more likely to listen to you than to listen to me. Um, they're not going to read my book. They are pre-defended against people who have larger platforms and are like um, seen as, you know, they're already kind of put in the them camp from the mirror world, right? Um, but it, it does seem that if you have a pre-existing relationship, if it's a friend from high school, if it's a, if it's a family member, that those pre-existing relationships of trust are most likely to be the bridge or that, that they, might, they might accept out of there if they're looking to get out, right? I mean, the thing about this world is that, yeah, it does provide comfort, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of lying that goes on. There's a lot of grifting that goes on. So it may well be that the early joys of it have started to wear off, you know, and they're starting to see the cracks and they have their own questions that they can't really ask. And so they might be, they might be ready to get out of there. You know, I I mean, I I don't think it's, I don't think it's that rosy. Well, then to follow up on that, is there a specific example where you thought that is the way and it's given you hope? I mean, we're all dealing with a lot these days. So is there something, a story, an anecdote that you can share with us that was hopeful? Sure. I mean, I'm going to go big picture on it, though, a little bit, because the thing that has really given me the most hope um, lately is that I've seen a lot of people organizing in their workplaces and in their schools. You know, I think that when it's when it isn't just about who's posting what online and who has what position, but there's a real tangible struggle in the world that is about helping working people improve the quality of their life. That is part of what getting to reality looks like. So yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot of hope for the idea that we're going to kind of content moderate or fact check our way out of it. I really, the only thing that really makes me hopeful is when I see people organizing in ways that are meeting people's daily needs and kind of getting away just from the realm of words and posting and and getting to something more tangible. Naomi Klein, thank you for providing some instruction of how we could come a little bit closer together. It is really a privilege to talk to you. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It was it was my great pleasure. Well, Lee, you've been listening to Naomi Klein's interview and noting the parallels in your own research about the dangers posed by disinformation. So we'd like to ask you to provide the big picture takeaways in this episode. One of the things where I thought Naomi Klein was just dead on was when she said that she didn't think we were going to be able to fact check our way out of this. I like her way of putting it better about fact checking, but I've said myself that you can't debunk your way out of an infodemic. You can't just rescue everyone who has gone down that rabbit hole. One thing that you really need to do is to crack down on the amplification of disinformation. By the time someone believes it, 
it's almost too late. I think that disinformation is a uh, pipeline from the creators to the amplifiers to the believers. You can't get the creators to stop creating it. That's just, I mean, why would they? It's in their best interest. They're making a buck or getting power from it. But there was a statistic a few years back that really just opened my eyes. In 2019, the Center for Countering Digital Hate found that 65% of the anti-vax propaganda on Twitter was due to 12 people. Why don't we deplatform some people? I mean, you know, and then there are folks who will say, oh, that's just censorship. It's not. Refusing to amplify someone else's lie is not censorship. There's this myth out there that what we really need is all voices to be heard. Everybody speak, complete transparency, complete free speech, and the truth will rise to the top. But it doesn't. It pollutes the information stream. And the analogy I use here is science. If science were done that way, it would shut down overnight. I mean, should we give fraud fraudsters a chance at the table? Should they be invited to be a member of the National Academy of Science? Should flat earthers be invited to comment every time we have a rocket launch? I don't think so. You know, Naomi and I talked about this some. She talks about grounding ourselves more in the physical world, getting offline. Can you add to that? I think that people who have gone down this rabbit hole of science denial or conspiracy theories or whatever, believing disinformation, if they're victims, they deserve a little empathy. And you also have to, even if they're doing damage, you have to realize that they have lost their sense of trust. They've sometimes had a, a break, a break with reality, a break with community, just something that makes them, you know, turn to these alternative beliefs as, you know, what, what feeds them. And I think the way to combat that is just, you know, exactly what uh, Naomi Klein was saying in her interview, which was that we need to get people out of their silos and we need to try to find a way to connect with one another, even when we disagree. I often advise people who write to me about, you know, what can I do about my brother who's an anti-vaxxer or my, you know, my aunt who believes in flat earth. And my advice is always the same. Keep the relationship. Don't try to ram facts down their throat. Um, they don't need another person in their life that they're alienated from, that they distrust. Be the person in their life that they're glad to talk to and they might come back. Because what the anecdotal evidence shows is that people change their mind when they're ready to. And they change their mind on the basis of usually of a trusting relationship with someone who is patient and respectful and kind. And when they were ready, they went to them and they heard the facts. So I, I, I'm in favor of human connection. I think that disinformation is made worse when we're behind our screens, when we're blocking people, when we you know, don't go to the family reunion because we're afraid somebody's gonna bring up something that we don't wanna hear. I just think reaching out in genuine human connection is, uh, is really important. And again, this was something that I just, I loved about Naomi Klein's interview. Well, Lee, when we look at the, the big picture here in this conversation that we had with Naomi and the subject of disinformation, can you put this in the biggest picture possible, where we are and why this issue is so important? Disinformation, I think, is the challenge of our time. When people look back on the current era, some people have said they'll call it the information age. I think they might call it the disinformation age 
because we now live in a time when we have truth at our fingertips, but it is obscured by all of the falsehood that people of bad faith have put out into the marketplace. So in my book on disinformation, I use the analogy of the movie Indiana Jones and the Holy Grail. Indiana, and I don't think I'm ruining the movie for anybody here. You, you know when this happens. Indiana finally comes into the room and the Holy Grail is right there. But he can't tell which one it is because it's surrounded by a hundred fakes. That's the era that I think that we live in. Not one in which truth is something that you can't find. Not one in which truth is the shadow on the wall of the cave. But one in which truth is right in front of you. But you can't tell which is which because of all the other disinformation that surrounds it. Lee McIntyre, thank you so much for joining us to help put the subject of disinformation in a bigger context. Thank you so much for having me back. Lee McIntyre is a philosopher of science and a research fellow at the Center for Philosophy and the History of Science at Boston University. He's the author of Post-Truth and On Disinformation. Naomi Klein is an associate professor of geography at the University of British Columbia, and she is the co-director at the Center for Climate Justice. Her latest book about the dangers of disinformation is Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. This show is possible thanks to the grounded experience of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. If you have questions or comments about our show, our email address is bigpicturescience at seti.org. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science has been a conversation about disinformation with author Naomi Klein. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.